Chapter Twenty One of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Latchkey by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Twenty One: The Devil's Rosary. Ruthven Smith summoned courage to ask for a few words alone with Knight that Easter morning in order to explain as well as apologize for the seeming liberty he had taken. By dint of stammering and punctuating his sentences with short, dry coughs, he made a clean breast, as he called it, of the whole business. He had come to Valley House, he confessed, because of an anonymous letter, written apparently by a person of education, to inform him that the Melindor Diamond had come into the possession of the Nelson Smiths. Whether they were aware of its identity, the writer was not sure but in any case their ownership of the jewel was kept secret. Having got so far in his story, Ruthven Smith decided that the easiest way of finishing it would be to produce the letter. He did so, a typewritten sheet of plain creamy paper, in an envelope postmarked West Hampstead, and simplified things for himself by pointing to the last sentence. Mrs. Nelson Smith always wears a thin gold chain round her neck, which she lets drop to her shoulders for evening dress. What precious thing which has to be hidden hangs on that chain? Mr. Ruthven Smith is advised to find out. I see now, the unfortunate man excused himself, that someone has been taking advantage of my anxiety about the losses of my firm to play a cruel practical joke on me. I can't help thinking, at the same time, that the person must have had a grudge against you and your wife also. Or else a desire to make mischief between you and us, was Knight's calm suggestion. Ruthven Smith caught it up eagerly. Ah, that possibility hadn't occurred to me. I suppose we all have enemies, Knight pursued the subject without excitement. The writer probably wished to put the idea in your head that I had deliberately bought an historic diamond, which I knew to be stolen. But that would have been ridiculous, exclaimed the jewel expert, and felt sincere in making his protest. Nevertheless, he had glanced at Annesley's face while talking of the Melindor diamond to Lady Cartwright. It had been on the edge of his mind that, if she looked self-conscious, it would be a point against her and her husband. Also he had determined to make his daring attempt at discovery, before she had had time to get rid of the diamond, if she were hiding it. Now, however, in the light of her shining innocence, he had almost forgotten that he had suspected an underhand design on her part. He asked Nelson Smith if he could think of any one, man or woman, among his acquaintances, capable of writing the anonymous letter. Nelson Smith replied that his brain was a blank, and that he hardly thought it worth while to follow the matter up, unless Ruthven Smith wished to do so. In that case they might put the affair in the hands of the police. But the elder man was of the younger's opinion. He had made a fool of himself, and was ashamed that he had attached importance to an unsigned communication. All he desired was to let the unpleasant business drop. This being settled, Knight, in whose hand was the typewritten letter, tossed the thing into the fireplace of the library, where the two had been talking. When he and Ruthven Smith had shaken hands and agreed to forget the whole incident, the latter was glad to escape from the interview. He went to his room and lay down, to soothe his nerves and think of an excuse to return to London early on Monday morning. As soon as his meagre back was turned, Knight stooped and retrieved the letter in its envelope, unscorched, from the fireplace. There was nothing about it, not even a tell-tale perfume, to give any clue to the writer. Nevertheless, Knight considered it of value. He intended to use it as a bluff to frighten the Countess de Santiago, 
for only through her own fear could he prove her treachery. Most of the guests at Valley House went to church, to give thanks for the fairy-like Easter eggs they had received. Annesley had a headache, however, and no one was surprised that her husband should choose to stop at home to look after her. His adoring devotion for the girl was no secret. People laughed at it, but admired it, too, and some women envied Annesley. They imagined him spending the morning with his wife, but as a matter of fact he did not go near her. He feared to speak, lest she might change her decision and refuse to travel to America with him. His one hope, a desperate hope, lay in her going. He decided not to see her alone again until Monday evening, after the arrival of the cable from America. In order to ensure the coming of this message, and to make it realistic, he motored into Torquay and sent a long telegram, partly in cipher. Returning, he had a conversation with Charrington, the butler, and Char, the chauffeur, in a conversation which left the brothers grave and subdued. Later Char went off in the car again, though it poured with rain, and was gone until late at night. Between twelve and one o'clock night, strolling toward the garage, heard the automobile return, and stopped in the blaze of the acetylene for the motor to slow down. "'Is it all right?' he inquired. "'It's all right,' Char answered, somewhat sullenly, yet with a certain reluctant respect. "'Nothing will happen here Monday night.' "'Good,' his master answered, and smiled at the thought of Madalena's malicious prophecy which would not be fulfilled. It was not a pleasant smile, yet as he had said to Annesley, he planned no revenge against the tigress, the woman whose claws had ripped his heart open. Tigress or no, she was a woman, and he knew that, as far as she was capable of caring, she had cared for him. Perhaps it had been partly his fault. She was handsome, and had been years younger when he had met her first. She was married then to an old man, jealous and suspicious, knowing that his money had won the beautiful wild creature for him. It was at Buenos Aires, and the husband had found Madalena out in an intrigue, partly political, partly mercenary, and partly passionate. He had turned her from his house without a penny, and Knight, not personally concerned in the intrigue, but interested, had been flush enough at the time to lend her a thousand dollars, enough to go away with. It had been called a loan, but he had not expected to get the money back, and never did get it. In California she had set herself up as a palmist, and had become successful, a success she duplicated in New York, and she had gladly made herself useful in many ways to Don, and those with whom he worked. One way was to find out the number and worth of her rich client's jewels, and where they were kept. Through her crystal-gazing she was always able to conjure women's secrets without their realizing that they, not she, gave them to the light. And aboard the Monarchic was not by any means the first time that Madalena had been invaluable in diverting suspicion by throwing it upon the wrong track. Knight had consulted her, praised her, and flattered her from time to time. Now, he told himself, that he was paying for his thoughtlessness. He had taken Madalena for granted, regarding her as a machine rather than a woman, and though he owed to her the loss of his happiness, that happiness had been undeserved, and, as he expressed it to himself, walking the wet paths at midnight, he had stood to lose it anyhow. He would frighten Madalena so that she would never dare to try her tricks again and he would let her understand that because of what she had done their partnership had come to an end once and forever. Otherwise she should feel herself safe from him. Bad he might be, and was, as he knew, but he didn't think it was in his make-up, somehow, to strike a woman. He did not go back to the house, after his short talk with Char, until after he had heard the stable clock strike four. 
It was easier to think and see things clearly out of doors than in his room adjoining Annesley's, that closed room, forbidden to him now, where she was perhaps crying and surely hating him. As for the long nightmare day he had lived through, it had been too full for much deliberate thinking, and he had wanted to plan for the future, how to begin again, and how to keep the woman who had come to mean more for him than anything else had ever meant, more, he knew, than anything else could mean. He was not sure whether the love in his heart was a punishment or a blessing, but there it was. It had come to stay. This woman to this man. He found himself repeating the words he remembered best in the marriage service, not bitterly as he had repeated them to Annesley, but yearningly, clingingly, groping after some promise of hope in them. She gave herself to me. I'm the same man she loved after all, though she says I'm not, he told himself. God, what's the good of being a man at all if I can't get her back? As he wandered through one winter-saddened garden after the other, the Italian garden, the Dutch garden, the rose garden, he searched his soul, asking it how much more he should have to tell the girl about his past. In a kind of desperate resignation he persuaded himself that there was nothing he would not be willing to tell her now, if it were for her good, and if she wished to hear. But something within him said that she would wish to hear no more. She would deign to put no questions to him, even if she felt curiosity. She would doubtless refuse to listen if he volunteered a further confession. He was instinctively sure of his ground there, and in his bitterness of spirit there was a faint gleam of comfort. Certain details of his degradation, she would think it that, might be kept decently hidden. For instance, he would not have to tell her how, as a boy in Chicago, he had learned to make use of those clever, nervous hands of his, which she had lovingly praised as sensitive and artistic. He could almost see the girl shudder and grow pale at hearing how proud he had been at sixteen of being admitted to friendship with a swell mobsman, fascinating as any raffles of fiction, how it had amused the fellow to teach him a deft and delicate touch, beginning his lessons with the game of jack-straws, in which he was given prizes if he could separate the whole stack, one straw from another, without disturbing the balance of the pile. It would gain him no credit in Annesley's eyes if he should assure her that, though he knew how to pick pockets, none better, he had somehow never cared to put his skill into practice, but had always preferred leaving that part of the industry to others. No excuse could help him with her, and he was glad she need not know all the ways in which he had served the eccentric friend and employer with whose interests he had been associated more or less since his twenty-fifth year. How disgusting would seem to Anita the inside story of the monarchic episode, upon which he had rather prided himself until love for her had begun making subtle changes in his view of life. He and old Paul Van Vreck had laughed together at the patent lock on which the agent depended, a lock invented by the retired member of the firm himself, and followed by a second invention, even more clever, a little instrument designed to open a door in spite of it. There had been the drug, too, which, leaving no odor behind, had the same effect as chloroform, and took even more quickly. Paul Van Vreck had read of certain experiments made by a professor of chemistry in Tours, and had gone to France to see the man, and had bought the formula, which had not yet proved itself entirely successful, had added ingredient on his own account, and triumphed. These parts of the complicated and well-fitting scheme had seemed deliciously amusing to-night in those days, that Van Vreck should use his secret skill against his own brothers and nephews in the business he had made, that the great expert should add to his fortune by stealing from his own firm, 
or rather from the great insurance company who would repay their losses, that in such ways, with such money, he could add treasure to his famous collection, practically at no expense to himself, and have besides the exquisite pleasure of laughing in his sleeve at the world. It had all added zest to the work, and Knight had been pleased with some small inventions of his own, praised by Van Vreck, a smart hiding-place in the heel of a boot, almost impossible to detect, and another equally convenient and invisible in the jet standard of Madalena de Santiago's famous crystal. He had enjoyed the excitement when he and Madalena and their two assistants, among the other passengers on board ship, had consented to be searched for the missing jewels, and he had laughed sneeringly at the credulity of those who believed in Madalena's trumped-up vision of the small fair man, the lighted life-preserver dropped into the sea at night, and the yacht which sent out a boat to pick it up. For that other vision her crystal had supplied, after the robbery in Portman Square, he was not responsible. But it was he who had suggested the pictures for her to see on shipboard. He hated the recollection now. Even Annesley could not think it more contemptible than he did. Still worse was the remembrance of Mrs. Ellsworth latchkey, the keeping of which had been accidental at first. Afterward he had gaily regarded its possession as a gift from Providence. The way to Ruthven Smith's house was made clear by it, and better still, through it the dragon could be punished for years of cruelty to the captive princess. Char had been the man to whom fell the honor of bestowing the punishment, and leaving a missive from the princess's rescuer. Knight writhed in spirit as he wondered whether the princess guessed the fate of the key. He wondered also if she asked herself what part he had had in the disappearance of the Valley House heirlooms. She would loathe him more intensely, if possible, could she know how her presence with him on that public show-day had helped to cloak with respectability his secret mission. How mean he had been in distracting her attention from the two Fragonards, and from the cabinets containing the miniatures and the carved Chinese gods of jade, while he marked the prizes for the eyes of his two assistants. How unsuspicious and happy the girl had been, trusting him utterly, while behind her back he manipulated the diamond, the useful diamond he always carried for such purposes. Even then he had had the grace to be ashamed of himself for disloyalty, though not for dishonesty, as deftly the diamond cut the glass faces out of the cabinets directly opposite the miniatures, and the Buddha meant to enrich Paul Van Vreck's secret collection. He had been glad to hurry his wife away, and let the eager pair of tourists crowding on his heels finish the work he had begun. It seemed to-night, as his thoughts travelled heavily along the past, that no other woman but Annesley Grail, this fragile white rose that had freely given its sweetness, could have turned him from the vow of vengeance for his parents' fate, which as a boy he had sworn against the world. Day by day, week by week, month by month, the fragrance of the white rose had so changed him that looking back at himself he saw a stranger." Had it not been for certain engagements made with Paul Van Vreck and others, engagements which had to be kept because there is honor among thieves, that den of his in Portman Square would long ago have been shut to his at-home-day visitors. No more business would have been done on those or any premises, this party of Easter guests would not have been invited to Valley House, and the Melindor Diamond, sleeping away its secret on Annesley's breast, would still be guarding his secret, too. While the others were at church, she had sent him the diamond by Parker, the blue diamond and the rose sapphire, her engagement ring also, the pearls he had given her the day before their marriage, and all his other gifts, 
except the wedding-ring, which had not been stolen on the night when the Annesley Seton silver went. It had been a blow to open the box brought to his room by the maid without a word of explanation, no lighter because it was deserved. It was only less severe than had the wedding-ring been with the rest. And perhaps, Knight reflected, it would have been there had Annesley known of another trick played upon her, those cleverly reconstructed pearls, gleaming ropes of them, and paste diamonds added to her collection only for the purpose of disappearing in the burglary. A hateful trick, but he had believed it necessary at the time, while despising it. Well, he was punished for everything at last, everything vile he had done and thought in his whole life, even those things the white rose did not know. He was still young, but he felt old, old in sin and old in hopelessness, for youth cannot exist in a heart deprived of hope. It seemed to-night that his heart had been deprived of hope for years, yet suddenly he recalled the fact that a few moments before, up to the time when he had begun counting his sins one by one, like the devil's rosary, he had been thinking with something akin to hope of the future. What if, after all, he began to ask himself, but stumbling unseeingly from avenue to path, and path to lawn, he had wandered near the house. By what seemed to him a strange coincidence he had come to a standstill, almost on the spot where he had stood last night when Annesley, at her window, called him in. She had loved him then. She had called him in to be forgiven. But her forgiveness, divine as it was, white and white-winged as the flight of a dove, had not been wide enough to cover his guilt. What a ghastly difference between last night and this! It was right that the face of the moon, so bright then, should be veiled with ragged black clouds. And yet, what if— The man's eyes strained through the darkness of that dark hour before the dawn. If her window is uncurtained, I'll take it as a good omen, he said. Noiselessly his feet trod the short, wet grass, going nearer to the shadowed loggia to make sure. The curtains were drawn closely, and the window was shut. End of chapter 21